Hi, I'm Will Ross. Hi, I'm Devin Scott. Today we're here to talk to Chris Blauvelt, the cinematographer behind films like First Cow, directed by Kelly Reichardt, and this year's adaptation of Jane Austen's Emma, directed by Autumn DeWilde, and how he achieves the look and textures of these movies. The testing and philosophies he uses to get there, and a few wider conversations about the communal experiences he's had when making movies. What he said. Welcome to Film Formally. <laughs> Welcome, one and all, to Film Formally. Chris Blauvelt is here with us today. He is a cinematographer who has shot films including Sofia Coppola's The Bling Ring, Ned Benson's The Disappearance of Eleanor Rigby, Gus Van Sant's Don't Worry, He Won't Get Far on Foot, and Autumn DeWilde's adaptation of Emma, released earlier this year. His latest work to see release is First Cow. It's his fourth collaboration with director Kelly Reichardt. Chris, thank you for joining us. We're really happy to have you here. Thanks for having me. I'm excited about this conversation. Every film that Chris has shot has an extremely distinct texture of its own. Uh, if the term texture feels indistinct to you listeners, it most formally refers to the apparent qualities of a surface, physically when we touch it. But when we're talking about movies, that means, for example, the film grain or digital noise has a visible texture. The objects on screen, whether they're grass, metal, wood, paper, they all have a visible texture. And those things, along with the colors, the intensity of the image, the contrast, the choice of lens, all of those contribute to the overall impression or feeling of a texture. Chris, like I mentioned, there is a lot of variety in the textures of your work, and yet it always seems really elaborately formed and so specific. My strong impression is that it's a part of cinematography that holds a lot of interest for you. Yeah, that's absolutely true. It's a, an elaborate process that goes into every film. It's uh, when you get a script, the challenge is to make something that's just very specific to that particular idea and story. And then, of course, it, get, it evolves through learning about the director's vision and references and, and all the material that, that, and collaboration, therefore, in the prep. It stems from the script and the idea that everything um, should be and could be very unique and specific to that that thing and it's also exciting to explore things and um you know like when you get a when you have a challenge in front of you you know like i you know i i just did that movie emma with autumn wild who's a great friend and director and she's she's like on another spectrum in terms of like quality and color and and style than kelly for example so to me it's like they're really fun and exciting challenges to think about them as like unique um, uh, pieces of art. What really struck me watching First Cow and Emma within close proximity to each other, if someone hadn't come to me and said the same cinematographer shot these, it would not have even crossed my mind. At least in terms of cinematographers that carry recognition, they're often associated with house textures, 
so to speak. Like, you know, I, you can usually tell, you know, uh, what a Chris Doyle film is going to be because he has a certain kind of uh, way of shooting things, textural decisions he makes that are very distinctive. Or you can always tell generally what a Roger Deakins film is, is going to look like because he never shoots with filters. He always tries to get the cleanest possible image in that way. Um, he'll use modern lenses and never use vintage lenses, never shoot anamorphic even. But in your work, I, I see this wide variation and it almost feels like project to project you're starting at a few more basic questions than a lot of cinematographers might what medium do we want this to look like what medium do we want to use and how do we want to essentially process the image both on set and in post to match this story um where does your creative process begin at, on, on any given project and i bet it differs greatly depending on the project from where i came from like a lot of my mentors and one of them being Harris Savitas most, most prominently, there was this idea that I learned early on, maybe like in the nineties when I was still a camera assistant and it came from him and Gus and uh, one was minimalism is like also an idea of how not to uh, have your hands on everything and not to show yourself as a cinematographer, as like an observational um, experience, you know, so I think that um, there was this seed was planted um, early on with me about really honestly treating the script for what it should be. And you have to take your ego out of it a lot. You know, I think that, um, you know, I, I, I've had some success in a certain, certain genres and like real grainy, gritty, like film. And uh, I won an award at Sundance for a but this movie called Low Down, which was like just gritty six seventies uh, Holly Los Angeles like junkies, and what I've learned is to really be honest about what you're trying to say and what you are saying. And honestly, if there's a a good movie review for a film I've done and they don't mention me at all, I think that's a success. Like because I did I did my job, I served the purpose of that particular script. And then in regards to Emma, I think it's this is a this is a fun conversation for me because one, because it's with a, a dear friend of mine and, and she knows me really well. We're both Hollywood kids and, and uh, we talk a lot about being punk rock and like, you know, really like being scrappy and doing things with nothing. And, and she has one that's like created this style on her own. That's like this super fashiony and colorful and whimsical and beautiful and symmetrical and, and all of these things. And so when she came to me with Emma, the first thing she said was like, I'm so sorry, Chris, you're going to lose all your punk rock points with this one, <laughs> but you have to do this movie with me. And I was like, oh, no, I'm, I'm there, you know, let's do this. Because like I was saying before, I didn't want to get, I had, anyway, I had to just treat the script for what it was. And so now I'm doing this Jane Austen movie that is a book that my mom loved growing up. And, you know, like, um, being English and one of my favorite this, books. <laughs> it's like the antithesis from a lot of things I've done. And so, you know, even in the testing, I remember like, okay, like what is my version or my adaptation of this? Like what is, you know, my little bit of an imprint that I would have on it be, you know? And I slowly, I slowly, slowly, I would just back away. I, and I knew I wanted to find that also, which is another part of testing that maybe we can get into later. But it's a huge part of this process if you really are going to be um, putting yourself out there to find something mm -hmm. and exploring all of the tools and all of the all of the technology and all of the things you can use and finding and that recipe that that 
that works just for this aesthetic that you're trying to create. So when I was doing Emma and I was testing for Emma, which was months and months, I had the luxury, you know, such this was the biggest film I'd ever done. So I had a, a long, longest prep I've ever had. So for me, I was at the camera rental house every day. I was like really trying to just like do my research and do as much testing on stages or whatever I could do, like go out and into these um, areas in London and, and see how the grass looked and just like explore and look at fabric with the costume designer and with the production designer bringing like wallpaper and swatches of paint. But what happened was I was, I was, of course I knew this would happen also, but I, I can't do this like grainy gritty version of that because it's not respecting what it wants to be, you know? So I found a balance. I found my place in there. I found like a look that I believed and Autumn, of course, believed that this was our version of this story. It wasn't supposed to be a 16 millimeter underexposed grainy experience. It just wasn't that. It would be me showing off or something. It would be me putting my hand on it too much. And so that was me finding that and respecting that culture, that genre, this like this costume period piece, you know, and finding our way with it. Autumn DeWild is obviously a very accomplished uh, photographer in her own right. And as you said, really distinct aesthetic of her own. And it strikes me that Emma has a lot of the qualities of her photography. I mean, obviously, you're, you're fitting the aesthetic of the film that you're developing to the script and to the story that you're telling, how much of it also are you thinking is like, okay, and Autumn has also this personal voice and I have to figure out how to how to amplify that voice. Yeah, no, you're right. I think, and that was not lost on the, on the, the producers in the studio that grabbed her for this. They saw her work and sort of saw a through line there that could appease each other. And so when she was giving them her first uh, pitches, you know, she just blew them away. Like she just brought, I mean, they're amazing. Like everything was so tactile and she was printing on paper that could have been printed from that period. And everything was just like, you would open up the, these little books about each character. And it was like, you're reading a newspaper from that time. She was meant to make that film. And I think the timing was just right for her to make this, you know, come out this way. As far as kind of where you step in, Autumn and especially notably uh, Kelly Riker, they both come in with a very specific aesthetic and vision. Is there any element of, for example, Emma, which is a great starting point of the film where you can you can go, okay, yeah, this element of the vision was something that maybe you brought to the table that maybe wasn't in the original first draft that was handed to you? I mean, first draft of the vision. I would say it exists throughout. There's just, I mean, everything is a really deep collaboration. Mm -hmm. So it'd be hard for me to say, you know, specifically, but there were some, there were some shots, you know, say that I gravitated to, to tell a particular part of the story that I'm really proud of, you know, ingesting into this conversation and having it play out onto the screen. So, but honestly, it is really, it's such a deep uh, collaboration that, you know, every scene, every, you know, every shot was deliberated over. It's the same way I work with Kelly and it's just, we, sh we go through the script, you know, page by page, word by word. And we, we watch movies and we sort of figure out the structure that, that fits our language that we're um, choosing to tell the story. There's a, there is a shot. It's a, uh, after a, uh, um, Harriet, Mia's uh, character uh, hurts her ankle. They're all sitting in this in this uh, room together playing cards. 
And uh, there's just this like really a long, long shot, you know, which are, I don't want to say scary to do. I mean, I love them, but it's one of those things that you live with these shots in the edit. If you're going to do an entire scene in, in a wonder like that, but uh, just the rigging and the, and it was me convincing autumn, like this could be done, you know, cause she mm-hmm. was so into it. Like, but how Chris, how it's something we're sitting there on a scout and we're looking through a lens and take photographs and it just like, come spontaneous like honestly i don't remember if it was like my exact idea or autumn saying can we though do it all the way through and it's like no no no, we can do this like and so you make the you know you go back to the to the drawing board and you talk to all the techs involved and okay it can be done and so when you see it on on the film and the score is happening and it's just this beautiful moment it's like it's sublime it's it's one of those things that when you see all the layers put to get put down and it's uh it's doing what it's supposed to do and making you feel the way it was intended and that that to me is just a really gratifying experience so you've described the kind of first embers of the visual language of the film you know uh, the director comes to you with a specific vision and you start developing that um, what does that development look like? And specifically what I want to get at is what leads you to finally arrive at, for example, what medium do you shoot on? What filters do you use? Even what medium do we want the audience to think we shot on? It all, like we spoke of before, it starts with the spark. It starts with the reference material that, you know, Kelly will start giving me films to watch, you know, like a year before mm-hmm. a movie happens. And so that it just be the conversation begins that way with watching films that we enjoy and maybe they're related or pulling things from from these different genres and it could be photography or paintings or i mean kelly for example uh for first cow was having me look at um this artist michelle serge who's this sculptor and like that's another um art form and and it was informing us you know you begin that way and then it's it's all the testing and experience that i have and with the talented people that i surround myself with um on any given film it's like it the conversation just leads to testing i personally think that just being open to things and listening to people like i mean we were in portland on on First Cow and Michael Kerner, he runs Kerner Camera there. And it's like people like that, like, hey, Michael, this is what I'm going to do. And I'm thinking this and this and this, or these lenses and maybe some of this filtration. And he'll say, oh, but have you tried these filters? You know, so it's just the recipe is just this collection in the beginning. It's just you're just grabbing from the market. You're just going with the, you know, with a big giant shopping cart, you're putting everything in it. And then you slowly starting to put the pieces together and see what matches. And it's a lot, a lot of testing. And I think that um, a fun part of this also for me is just having my, my director in a theater with me and possibly producers. And I like to do some blind tests, you know, so I'll start to sort of uh, distill the lenses down to say like three different lens types and you know a couple variations of filters and a couple different exposures or maybe film processes if if we're shooting on on celluloid and i like to just sort of take away all of the um, you know we shoot charts before and and slates that will determine that will signify what is what and i'll have the i will edit those out and i'll say like just let's just find you know what is our film 
And it's funny, you'll see people gravitate or I'll say, just talk out loud and we'll make notes. And my assistants will make notes like, oh, she really, she keeps grabbing, going back to this one. It's this 50 millimeter on this, you know, this airy signature lens. And, and that's, that's another part of this thing because, you know, I don't want to be the dictator of that also. I think it's like, I'll have the conversation um, with my director. Luckily and gratefully, the ones I work with, they trust me and they're, they're honest debates, you know, and sometimes it's, it goes against maybe my instincts on some certain things, but it's ultimately, this is a, this is a collaboration, you know? And so that's, that's how we end up with what we end up with. On my own projects, for example, I'm really one to, to like just line up a million different filters or as many as I can realistically get my hands on on a shoestring and then, you know, test different filters, test different lenses, kind of do like specifically shoot my subject on those and try and rigorously bring it down to like a specific look. And then, you know, I'll present maybe one or two options to the director. And it yeah. sounds like you're, you're kind of uh, working with the people around you a lot to uh, kind of collaboratively ride on some inspiration to to come up with a look you think is suitable. That's really, yeah, that's very true. I trust and I put faith in my crew because I, I don't have an ego. I don't, I like it to be collective. I want them to know that they can come to me and like, you know, a good example of a set environment is like, you know, my DIT, my first AC, my gaffer, like they know that they can come to me because say, you know, for every particular film you set, you set yourself up with some rules and this is our look and we've decided, you know, you know, um, in great detail during a test. So we make our, we make rules for ourselves. And this is what, this is what keeps an aesthetic strong, in my opinion, on any particular film. So it's not like a, like a sloppy thing that's going on. You've decided in advance, like how you're going to compose something or when we're going to light something for more dramatic, um, uh, input or, you know, things like that. So like, you know, I can get caught up in it. There's a lot going on. And I love, I, I love, love, love when my crew comes to me and says, Hey, remember we, that's it. And your shot, we didn't want to do that. Or this is a backlight here that we don't like on her, but let's fix that. Or sometimes it's like, no, 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 you're wrong. You missed it. There's going to be, a, there's a detail here that we were going to do. Okay, cool. So this, there's a lot of checks and balances happening with the team there. That helps me. I'm a very collective person on set and I, I love I, I love and trust my crews till the end. That idea you brought up there about almost shooting idioms as a subtractive thing uh, really interests me because I know that um, one thing I, t I teach cinematography and one thing I really try and instill in my students is the idea that you know you have a million choices. I mean, when you set foot in a set, you can do literally whatever you want with the light, with the camera, with anything. But to create a coherent look. You know, it's as much about yeah. limiting your options as it is about That's trying right. to get the biggest light and, you know, and, and yeah. uh, maximizing what you can do. Yeah, that's funny. I think uh, it's hard. It's hard too, and I've I've learned this from Harris, and I've even heard him on an interview saying this. It's uh, you know, when you first start shooting, say you're you're. Ex I mean, even now, you're you can be very excited about all of the tools that are here and the technology has come so far so there's cameras and there's resolution that numbers i don't even know and there there's like you know lenses that do magical thing whatever so it's easy <laughs> to get excited about this but i think it's important to find like understand why you're doing something you know don't just have a crane or a camera moving 
for no reason, unless that's what you decide. Okay. This is a haphazard film. This is the way, you know, I just, I think it's important to show restraint and I think it's important to really understand why you're doing any particular thing. And I mean, camera movement, lighting, composition, like all of it. If you're thoughtful about that, it's, it, it comes across more exactly that. It comes across more thoughtful, in my opinion. I think it was Gordon Willis who said, don't fall in love with your tools. Yeah. You know, I learned this also. It was something that, that when I, I was a uh, first assistant cameraman for Harris Savitas before he passed for, it was about 23, 24 years or something like this. And I remember I was so excited in my life because I, I did my first movie as a first assistant on a movie called Jerry with Gus Van Sant. And all of a sudden I'm making films with the people that I, I admired as I, they're like Gus's films that, you know, I lived in this like house with a bunch of punk rockers and I would show Gus Van Sant movies. And I'll never forget the second job we went to do elephant. And I, I being the great first assistant that I was, I was like, I called the camera house. It was Panavision. And I said, I put all of the gear on hold that we had. Harris, don't worry. I'm, I got you covered. And he's like, what are you doing? No, we're not. You don't do the same thing again. This is different. And that was when I started to really, I started to learn about that philosophy where, yeah, like not, one, not showing off. And two, like that thing you were saying about, you know, maybe other DPs getting a reputation for, you know, just a look that, that, that they've bought into. And that's how you know it's their, it's their sort of signature. It goes directly to the last couple films that I, that I've done. And I mean, those films are like the antithesis of each other in so mm -hmm. many ways. But the a hilarious uh, fun fact there is that there's the same year in the world, in, in the world, oh, like wow. it's 1817. And it's like, you know, like dirty beaver trappers covered in mud <laughs> in, you know, the new frontier of America. And it's over to civilized England with all of the fashions and hierarchies and and society so yeah. the many moods of yeah. Chris Blauvelt yeah but that you know I think it's funny also like um, just the challenge you know I think that's a beautiful thing and I'm I'm again I, I'm very grateful like I have you know uh, people around me even my my crew even my agents like people that understand that like like I could have done low down like one, two, and three, and four, and five, and six, you know, because that was like a high point for me. And, you know, what did you do? And it was 16 millimeter. But like my next film was digital and it was like, mm. yeah, like this is what it deserves. And there's reasons for you to do that. And so I, I take a lot of pride in the fact that I, I really honestly, when I read a script and then I hear the director and I go and I look at the references, like I honestly want to have an opinion formed around all of those ideas and not something that I've done or a recipe that I've had in the past. This really speaks to something that I really hold deeply, which is, in my view, the precedence of process over focus on a product, where if one chooses to carefully develop their process and trust in that process, then whatever results from that may be more true to their way of seeing and the vision of the project than just simply focusing on how can I get this look? Yeah, and I don't think I'm the only one who thinks this way. I just think that you could get 
you could get really happy with a certain way you shot something, you know, and I could see the security in that. I could see like why there's reasons that you would do that. Or I mean, maybe literally people would have been hired for that type of look. You know, I think that's also a scenario that lives in the world, but um, I don't know. I, I, I find I, I like to be challenged and I, I enjoy when I read a script that just blows me away. I just want to make it that, I just want to give it a, a, its own look, like whatever the name of that film is, that's what I want it to be. All of the testing through all the years with with uh, it was something that I did with Harris. I was the the assistant, so I I was the one with the notes, you know. And we would shoot extensive tests, and this is something that that is just instilled into my work ethic. And I, I, I you know, again, I'm not the only one that does this. I'm not bragging in that sense. I'm just saying that. All the notes, I have folders and folders of recipes. And, and one in particular, Emma, was something I found. That camera, that format, that large format, Alexa, I shot as a test for Gus Van Sant uh, for Don't Worry. It was just a part of a test. And, I mean, you want to talk about someone who's open-minded to things, Gus Van Sant. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Gus Van Sant. Like, he asked me, he was like, he was looking at telephones black magic cameras um, all the way up to all the way up to IMAX, like anything in between. I mean, we were showing and screening VHS footage. We were looking at high eight video footage. We looked at everything and it was, it was beautiful. I loved it. You know, he's so open. He just wants to find it. And that was something that Harris did. He would try to find the fault in something. Like when the digital cameras first came into our world it was like, don't overexpose, don't overexpose, don't overexpose. And, or underexpose also, it was, you know, there was no latitude. It so it was like, don't, don't go over that. And Harris was like, oh, we're going to overexpose this camera like, by eight <laughs> stops. Like he wanted to burn the sensor. And they're like, no, this is a brand new prototype camera. And Harris has got like xenon lights going into the <laughs> Like, you know, Which he wanted to find, uh, the first time it came into our world was Zodiac. Yeah, I, I was thinking it was that because yeah. um, that film, the, the, yeah. the daytime exteriors in that film are hosed, as my yeah. old gaffer would say. <laughs> But they're gorgeous. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a beautiful film. And I it's funny, I mean we re broke those cameras all the time. We were burning <laughs> them up. They were they had a heat issue. They were like they were very new. They were the it was called a the um Viper, the 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 Thompson Viper yeah, or that's it. Yeah, but they would heat up and they would also, they were noisy. So we created, we built these little barnies that would go around it. And then we found that we were suffocating them so they heat, they would break even more. Oh my gosh. It was very, you know, it was in the beginning, <laughs> early stages of that. Well, and that, that, that pays off well. Cause like one thing I love about, I actually love watching movies now shot on the Thompson Viper because it was this camera that still like does things that cameras don't quite do today. And I'm just glad that movies like Zodiac pushed it in ways it wasn't intended to go because yeah. now we have these movies that look like nothing else that's ever been. And now that the Vipers time has come and gone, like nothing will ever look quite like them again. Yeah, I agree. Unless someone get, does some hardcore Viper emulation, which I'm sure oh, someone will. I'd love to. Will. Please yeah. give me that challenge. Oh. <laughs> no, it's funny how some of that stuff gets nostalgic. Like, remember... I don't know if you guys were around for this stuff, but it was like we were shooting uh, like DVX or HVX 1000s, those that those little consumer cameras. Oh, I, I used and those these in people film like school. they were yeah. called yeah, and these people called like uh, Red Rock, and there was one called Letus, and they made these spinning, oscillating um, uh, 
pieces of glass that would you would put in front and in front of that you'd have a lens mount so you were sort of you were sort of like pimping your ride for this like consumer camera and having you know uh cin- cinema lenses on the front and like you know if, if you if back in the day when that was happening it was just this fad it lasted i don't know a couple of years maybe and it just you know the cameras blew them out of the water all the new technology came and red whatever but if you look at yeah. it now it's kind of great mm-hmm. like you like i like to see some older kind of fucked up uh imagery like that like and back in the day you know we were all going okay this is this is beat this is boring this is where everybody's out outdoing overdoing it and it just uh, you know it's funny how things can also come back and so as technology moves imagine that you know like i was uh giving that that sort of philosophy of the shopping cart and the or the metaphor for you know creating your recipe but imagine like technology is where it is now this is the most present that will ever be in this minute this time right now and so there's just amazing tools but imagine now adapting some of those older things to what we have now and just creating this frankenstein thing like this is what i think about when i before i go to sleep at night like i i i want to have that challenge or i love having that challenge and saying like oh my god what if we use that that adapter that was for this other camera and we try it on large, right? I don't think anyone's done it. Let's try that. And like, you know, a lot of times it's just like fail. That looks terrible. It's pixelated, whatever. But like if you're open to that, and I certainly am, it can be a very, very um, satisfying uh, moment. Tell us a couple of your dreams. Like, shooting a war movie on vhs <laughs> shooting a musical <laughs> with like a like tell us a couple of those dreams you have oh man they're everywhere my dreams are are a very prominent part of my life <laughs> i it's funny i when i was a kid my uh, my mom said the teacher came to her i mean this is probably kindergarten first grade or whatever she, the teacher said to my mom i don't know where he goes but i wish i could go there too <laughs> and that's just me i'm a daydreamer and i and i you know yeah, I don't know. There's a there's so much technology, and it all it's it comes from the scripts, you know. Mm. But I I love shooting film still. I you know we were just shooting uh, a project with a friend. She's making a documentary about her brother who was a professional surfer. This amazing guy Dane Ward and I had you know my wife had the Scoopic sixteen millimeter and I had the Bolex wind up <laughs> and you know we're pulling the film and and it's like. There, oh, it's like a like just a. I romanticize about that. It's just beautiful to me, and I don't know. I still get it all the time. I, I I'm I'm a very uh, lucky human being to do what I do and work around the people I do. You know, I mean, I talk to Kelly all the time, and she, you know, she's a film professor at Bard, so. There's my film school between her and Gus and Harris in, in my life. And I never went to school. I hated school. I hated like condescending authority figures. And I, <laughs> and I, it was something I never did. I learned by doing and I learned by surrounding myself with people like that. But she'll, there's, you know, I'll be in a car with her and there's all, there's this thing that happens and she'll say, Hey, Chris, have you seen? And I'm just like crossing my fingers, like, come on, come on, come on. I watched so many <laughs> fucking movies. And it's like, have you seen? And it's never, I not, you know, 90% of the times it's a movie I have not seen. But when she gives you something, it's something that changes your life. And it's, it's that magic that's just 
never ending with films. I read this interview with uh, Kelly uh, recently where she talked about her method of teaching sound to students was to show the beginning of McCabe and Mrs. Miller without visuals and to get the students to imagine what they, you know, what they see. And uh, I, oh, I wish I'd yeah. thought of that. <laughs> that is, Isn't that great? Yeah. yeah. Gosh, I'm going to have to steal that someday. Then... Yeah. She has the best ideas. Yeah. And it's about challenging herself too, in a lot of ways. She's very good at that. And I think like she, the reason, part of the reason I think that her and I fit so well together is because of, because of that, thoughtful uh, um, uh, ethic that goes into every shot, you know, like nothing like just because we have a steady camera, just because we have a crane or whatever the tool is, there is no reason that we're using that without it being, you know, very meticulously thought out. Uh, that actually, um, that's a good segue into Meek's cutoff um, because that film, there's a, there's, if I'm not mistaken, a mix of, Steadicam and other camera movement implements in that movie, I think. Yeah. And um, it all feels very deliberate um, in terms of the aesthetic each kind of movement style gives, right? Steadicams tend to be more floaty. You feel the operator a bit, but dolly shots are a bit more mechanical. You maybe feel the ground a bit more, depending on how you're doing it. Yeah. Um, How did that play into your decision making, or was it more of a practical thing? That was an evolution. I think that uh, I started that movie. There was another DP on board in the very beginning of that film. And they weren't getting along for whatever reason. But I think that uh, she started with a steady cam on a on the back of a forerunner because the terrain was obviously it was so bumpy and non-conducive to like a smooth shot that, uh, you know, they that was what they figured would work. And uh, when I got there, I realized through her conversations and her her dismay for some of the sort of like float that was happening and the whole movie's traveling. So they had to figure something out. And so uh, we just started laying down dolly track. And hmm. the day I got there, we ordered another like 200 feet of dolly track on top of what they had. And we, we jumped on the dolly. But I mean, it was one of those things also, you know, it was my first time working with Kelly and you know, me pitching that as, as our new method to shoot um, these people going across these planes. I, you know, I was invested. I, you know, I had, I was also sticking my neck out there. So I would go with my crew, you know, like three hours early. I would wrangle, I would just wrangle whoever was, was into it. And thankfully, you know, they were just a badass uh, team of amazing workers and people that were, Uh, on board and we brought shovels and we would dig out all the holes for as long as we could go and we would lay track and by the time the sun's coming up people are showing up to work we would be probably we'd be putting in the last 50 100 feet of this track and that was that was the evolution like that was where we landed something i want to ask about meek's cutoff is i think it's interesting to compare to first cow in that I mean, obviously, they're both uh, shot with a boxier aspect ratio. They're both period pieces. Yet, I think no one would ever vaguely mistake them as looking like each other. <laughs> they yeah. have such extreme different styles and textures. And uh, we might get into like a little bit about the specific textures of those films oh, comparatively. We but <laughs> <laughs> we might. We might. We'll see. We'll see. <laughs> but... Uh, I want to talk about the way they're composed because it, it occurs to me that they and a number of your films, uh, uh, the way that they're composed are different. The way that 
people are framed within them. Uh, and I wanted to know how texture affects that. Like, do you do you look at the comparatively very lush and busy textures of first cow with like wood and leaves and like all the and dirt and and mud everywhere? And then the uh, comparatively much cleaner uh, sort of geometry of Meek's cutoff. And, and is that a factor in how you compose the frames or? No, I think that the texture, I think it's, and the compositions are, uh, I think they're integrated, you know? And I think that you're right. I think that, yeah, when you're in the woods and there's just texture everywhere and there's, there's all this depth surrounding you, um, it, it, it informs the way you're composing a shot, but I'll go back to um, uh, the rules, you know? So in prep, we will set ourselves up for, this is why we're shooting this this thing or these places. And so in in the example of Meek's cutoff, um, you know, we were, um, yeah, one, we were treating the landscapes uh, in their own way, but that story is from the perspective of the women's journey in a lot of ways. And so that, that dictated like how we would shoot and what we would shoot in regards to angles or whose perspective. And then in first cow, you know, it's this relationship between these two people. And so we would change our dynamic in regards to like, who's sort of in like a power uh, or, um, or vulnerable position at any given time. So that was the way we made the structure in our language on, on, those against each other but yeah the texture and the and the lighting and the look of things you know that comes from all the reference material and things that we were pulling from films and paintings and photographs and and sculpture and that informed or that sort of like created the recipe or language that we made I want to kind of isolate first cow and talk about that recipe there then because um it has such an interesting kind of alchemy of, of things I've seen in previous films with you and Kelly. Um, like it has, uh-huh. you know, the boxy frame of Meek's cutoff. It has the Ari Alexa to film pipeline of, or film emulation pipeline of night moves. Tonally, it really feels like certain women, especially in the color grading, which is really dark. Um, like uh-huh. I, I, I compared the IRE levels of night moves and in uh, first cow, cause I'm a ah. giant nerd colorist and <laughs> like night moves was like peaking out at a hundred sometime, you know, like you'd almost, you'd have this full gamut. Yeah. And then first cow is like, a lot of scenes are like, like zero or like five, 5% to like 40%. Right. And and it does give it a different texture and that's a lot of complex decisions, even lenses, which I haven't even mentioned going into that. Well, that is, that is um, directly related to what I said before about like the recipes and the experiences you've had before, like you're picking and choosing the things that you want to make the recipe for first cow. It's a dark night uh, textured, like the nights and Meek's cutoff and the square mm-hmm. that we shot in. And also, you know, not to mention the like night moves, the technology was where it was at then. It was so much better now. So I did have clipping, you know, here and there, and it was a bit brighter, I guess, for day exteriors possibly. Yeah, it, it just, it it's its own. It was a recipe that we pulled out of things from our own bag of tricks as well as as things that we learned. What I'm maybe most proud of in First Cal was the challenge to shoot day for night. And I know why it existed. It existed for very obvious reasons, which was because 
these guys are on the run and they're going, you know, they're jumping off of cliffs into rivers. There was these big, big landscapes and a lot of nights of the, the beaver trappers, uh, you know, camp by the campfire and all this stuff. And like, you know, not having the budget to light an entire forest or to light this, this river. And so that was just a logistical, obvious um, reason. But all of the references I pulled up, the majority of them, they were from old films and they just sort of worked because there's an acceptance of a more theatrical thing back in those times. And that's what it was. Like if I, if you showed that now, the way those were, it would just seem campy or hokey or something. And maybe I should reframe that in a way that's like going, if you're going for a realism, like we do, like, like, honest and honest observation of this time, you know, showing this thing to be authentic, then those things would come across really, they just wouldn't work. And so that challenge for me was a big, big one. And it, it got scary at, at, towards the end of prep because I wasn't sure if I had it. And it was just really, really working it and working the, the tools and working the recipe and and testing like crazy. I tested for about almost four weeks and most of it on my own. I had um, a friend of mine who worked on the film, Jordan Green from Portland, Oregon. He would go out with me on any given day. And Michael Kerner, like I mentioned before from Kerner Camera, he would just loan me a camera and lenses and I'd have a slate and a chart and a dry erase board. And we were looking at in the canopy with sun, in the canopy and clouds, raining, raining exterior, you know, in the open, sunny in the open, like how the hell do you get, you know, do you do day for night and what do you need to make it work for, for all of these things that could come up, you know, Portland, Oregon, it's like sunny one minute and it's, you know, pissing down rain, torrential rain the next. So, you know, that was another uh, part of this process that we just had to have this, you know, we had a cheat sheet for all of these things and we all knew the recipe for each one this metaphor of the recipe this idea of the recipe <coughs> I, I i would love to i have a question about it in your interview uh for the new seventh row book about kelly reichardt which i just want to recommend to any of our listeners uh, it's a terrific book in your interview uh in that book you mentioned that certain women's format changed to 16 millimeter, I think from digital at the last moment. And the motivation was the way that the highlights rolled off because of the, all the snow in the movie. How much of the recipe, how much of the, the, the result is in your head at the outset? Like, for example, like certain women changing the format, it seems to me that that would have a, a significant impact on the texture, the style of the image, no matter what. Or maybe it didn't. Maybe you had like something <laughs> that looked exactly like certain women just with different highlight roll offs. But I suspect that it was it, it was quite different looking. So just generally, how much do you tend to go in with a clear image of what it'll be in your head versus just iteratively and additively building the look over time? And two, if you do have something in your head at the start, how often does it sort of differ from the final look that you end up settling on? You always go into it with the references. Like that's, that's like, we, we call it our spirit quite a bit. You know, we'll have like one or two photographs and it's, you know, we distill it down into these things. We want our day exteriors to look like this and our nights to look like this. And, you know, also you have to weigh, there's other things involved. So I think that shooting digital, it's sort of like my promise, like I did on night moves. It's my promise to Kelly, like, cause I don't maybe have all the tools 
to show her in those testing stages, I'm like, okay, you know, just, just realize that I'm going to get that thing that we've agreed on, you know? So I know that later in post, I'm going to go to resolve. I'm going to use this specific film grain and we're going to work it in, in these opacities and get that. There's another part of this, you know, process that will happen later. So in the testing process, you also have to take into consideration some logistical things, some budgetary things, like there's other factors, but ultimately the goal, we all know we're all in agreement on what we're trying to get to. And for me, I think it's digital, you know, it's come such a long way. And I think that, like I said before, it's, a, it's, I can promise Kelly and, and I love proving it to her as well. You know, it happened on first Cal where, you know, it was the day for night stuff. And I was telling her, you know, Autumn, she's like, how's it going? And I was, we were living in this house with my camera crew in, in Portland, Oregon, which was amazing. It was like this 1800s Victorian house that the, uh, the shins lived in. So they left all their gear. So we were playing music all the time. And it was anyway, sidetrack. But uh, my, my, my DIT came in to the house and when we started, I started giving him all the footage that I had been shooting and he knew, he knew the challenge. But finally, when we had the tools there to really dig in and really put grain on it and really, really work the highlights and see where we could crush daylight down and to look like an honest night, it, it, it was a breakthrough. I had her in the theater and, and that was me like, you know, coming through with the promise and saying like, okay. And she turned and hugged me. And I, I swear I went into that. Oh, she's, she's going to hate. That. I wasn't sure, but I was only sure the night at midnight, the night before. And our screening was the next day. And we had three more, three days until we were shooting. And I've been testing for a month. So it was, it, that one came down to the wire. So I would say to the first question, the goal is very much set in stone. Like we know going into a film like this is what we want this to look like. But, you know, like I said, there's logistical things that become a factor. And then you just have to sort of weigh, you have to balance all of these things and weigh your options there and your pros and cons to, to all of those elements. But uh, it's, it's, you know, you have to have that feeling before you, before day one that you know that you're going to get there. And, and sometimes, you know, that was a distant location. And so, you know, we had to send footage to, to New York, to Harbor uh, Post and Joe Goller, who's an amazing um, uh, colorist who understood what we were after. And he was sending us LUTs, lookup tables that we were building there. So we were collectively doing this as a team. And, but I had to, I had to have that process happen for me to say like, look, here's proof. This is what we're doing. And it might seem unorthodox, but, you know, you have to go through that. A counterpoint there is say you're shooting on film or 16 millimeter, you're looking at an SD, a standard definition video tap, which looks like just pixelated noise. And you know how we shoot and we go for it in the dark. It's just like, okay, this is black, you know, like, mm -hmm. all right, I trust you. Or I look, you know, when, and we do a lot of locked off and static compositions. And so when that happens, uh, Kelly will look through. So she'll have her eye on there, but when it's operated, I'll, you know, I do it. And she's looking at a monitor like, Oh, here's a good one. So in first cow, you know, when a cookie hits his head and he wakes up with these, this Hawaiian uh, elderly couple, 
uh, and we did that old school. We put Vaseline yeah. on the lens. You know, I had a rubber glove of Vaseline. So to me, that's like, that's, that's, you know, what's really fun about using, and that's the technique, you know, they used, you know, a million years ago on films and committing to that, you know, in camera look is exciting for all of us, you know? Everyone loves pulling a nylon over the lens. Isn't it yeah. true? It's like to that type of thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I've, um, I, like filtration and the different ways we get it is one of my pet things. I love it. It's, it just brings me endless joy. Um, and on that note, uh, you, you shot first cow largely with the glimmer glass, which is a uh, white specular filter, which means it's like for you, dear listeners, it means that, uh, you know, a piece of filter has been often like some sort of sandblasting technique is applied, you know, and you get like little white specks that kind of fog your image. There's other ways of doing that. I love the classic soft type of um, optical filters. What process led you to that filter specifically and not for example like a you know like a hollywood black magic or a black promise that sort of thing like why glimmer glass specifically well you know the answer to this <laughs> i tested all of those things i tested all those filters <laughs> and i've used all those filters i've used classic soft black promise like all of those ones you mentioned and i think that uh once we were and it's a balance too like imagine the lenses we were using were like from the 50s and they were the, they're the second series cooked pancros, which I I saw the first series also, and I and it was a friend of mine, Star White Size, his other cameraman lives in Los Angeles, and he got wind of this conversation I was having with the Camp Michael Kerner from Kerner Camera, and he said, "Oh, I have a I have an original set, a first series set, and these are built in the '40s." So he ships them there just as a friendly you know gesture for me to test and uh. I I loved them so much, but mm -hmm. they did this strange bouquet in the in the defocus in the forest. It was like a swirl. Ah, it's a, yeah, the pet's fall effect. I just couldn't handle it. It just seemed like too much of a look, you know. And I went further. I went all the way up to newer, more contemporary, like Cookass fours, and um, so even the lenses on their own, like those, were distilled down and honed in on to get to the second series. Like, okay, we all agree on this through testing 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 but then the filter on top of that you know you start clean like if i were to use the series ones which i was at one point really determined to use i would have used no filters because they didn't need it like those lenses look like it looked like you were looking through like an old ashtray or something and they were beautiful but it just didn't it just i just couldn't get over this kind of swirl that would happen in the backgrounds it just seemed like we were adding an effect or something and so that was that, that again, finding that balance between these older lenses and how much filtration I used and the glimmer glass, I really liked because they're very subtle, but it does, it lowers your contrast just a little bit and adds just a little bit of, of texture before you go into say a, a post like grain um, texture later. But then, you know, here's, here's another thing like right after then I went to do Emma uh, and actually another DP, Sam Renton uh, from England, he said, hey, have you used the uh, black satins? And I'd never heard of it. So I started testing those and they're, they, they, I, I loved it. And that was what I used for Emma. 
Oh, that's interesting because I didn't know what you used on Emma. It looks filtered, but in a very different way. Especially with First Cow, what I was noticing was, um, you know what it really reminded me of? Um, if you're ever using like a Rolleiflex or a, or a TLR camera, you look down at the ground glass, it, it feels yeah. like First Cow is shot through that medium. And um, that was kind of what took me about the glimmer glass because I've never used white specular filters on a film that actually made it to shooting. And um, it was uh-huh. an aha moment of, okay, that's what you can use them for. Great. This is the mental file now so and on emma another one on that subject once you tested the black testing it was testing uh, oh, Devin. good <laughs> lord but I, i'm so granular about this i'm so sorry but um that's no, good was there a specific kind of element and this might even be tough to verbalize about the black satins that for example when you tested them against other stuff that you went oh no no i want this yeah it goes it it does get granular that's a good way to say it i think we were you know when you're projecting something on a screen in a theater you get to really magnify it and and as well as literally magnifying into your image to see what it's doing because in the testing you'll show you always start clean so it's nothing and you're just looking at the lens for itself and then you start to incrementally add this filter and you find that that number that you like for any particular situation. I used a cleaner glass. I was using large format cameras. So I was a lot more resolution. And I was, I, we landed on the, um, Airy signature primes, which are very contemporary, very beautiful, but, but a very clean and nice contrast, uh, lens. So I was using a black satin, like a, I would use a number three at times. Because again, it's a subtle filter, but that's really heavy. Like if you look at it with your eye, it's got a lot of specs on there. That was my balance. That's what I found with those, you know, creating those rules. Like, so when we did the test, I would have like a a strongly backlit scene. We knew we had to go to to like a half black satin because you're going to flare your lens out anyway. And those are, those are basic rules in cinematography anyway that you find, but that was one thing I would, you know, my DIT would come over to me and say like, oh, we got to This one's a bit too heavy backlit. I think you might want to lower that a little bit. And you look at it together and like, you're right, let's, let's go down a notch. But that's this balance that you're finding through testing and you create this formula. What, what are some films that you or even just one film? Like, uh, I would love to talk about a film briefly whose look you really admire that like maybe something that's really kept with you over the years, something that you keep coming back to and you refer to it. And it's a one of a kind thing to you. Um, I think in recent times, I really love uh, uh, Powell's uh, Ida and Cold War. They're black and white. Mm-hmm. They're shot in four, three. And I just, it just like touches that thing for me that I just, it's, it's, um, it's just really satisfying, and I think it's a. It shows that restraint, and they're minimal, and the compositions are beautiful, but it's not overly beautiful. You know, it's not showoffy. It's just like, and they're really like these kind of dark, dramatic films in Poland. The phrase I use for those is beautifully ugly. Yeah, it goes to all those things that I have appreciate and I've learned to appreciate, which is when people just show they're not showing off, and they're really really respecting the story they're trying to tell you know i can see i've seen great shots and beautiful beautiful imagery but if it doesn't serve the story then i i I just call it out to oh you know they're they're showing off here Mm. and that's upsetting to me or or it's a distraction you know like let me really enjoy this film if it's beautiful i that's a good thing but it's it should serve the it should serve the story 
Do you ever have a, a moment where you, because uh, uh, I, I have a trouble resolving this stuff in my head. Do you ever watch something and think, oh, that's super beautiful and it's it's honestly showing off, like it's, it's technically extravagant to maybe a, a needless extent, but also you can see how it's directly motivated by and serving the story. Can those two things coexist in your head? Like absolutely. the idea of like technical showy extravagance? No, 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 absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's the, I mean, I'm a film lover. I love, I love being transported to another place. And when it, when it makes sense for the film and it's just like wild or whatever it's doing, like I, I'm in, I just think that if, if something, if it becomes a distraction, uh, you know, and there's like, there's been these waves over all, all of filmmaking where it's like, okay, handheld is the thing now. And there's this, you know, it's, people will just shine a light on, look at what they're doing. Isn't that amazing? And I just go, I like, can they just, I'll buy them a tripod, like just stop, like just, it's distracting. <laughs> and I want to look, you know, maybe the story's good and I feel like that's a waste and I, and that, that's upsetting to me. I mean, on the other hand, hey, think about those digital films we were talking about where yeah. they were following a trend and it was it was getting old. And then sometime later, we look at those and I'm, I'm only saying like, man, it can be tough to in the moment. Sometimes it can be tough to draw that line for me, at least. No, <laughs> it's true. I swear. I, you know, it's, I'm I'm also a human and I and I I react you know, in certain ways to certain things. And just to throw something out, it's like a fight scene and it's just, okay, we got to be handheld. We got to be in there. We got to really feel this. But I think you got to think about that. You got to think about what you're showing. Whose perspective is that? Like, why are you showing it that way? And I don't know, it goes back to the, to being thoughtful, like really honestly saying to yourself, like, what should I show? And to show something to be authentic you know, to make it, it's, it's, it's restraint. It's let, even in the edit, if you want something to be real, for example, right? If that's what you're going for, guess what? You're not going to do anything. You're going to show it. And if it's two people kicking each other's asses and one person, you know, bloodies another person and walks away, like then sh that's what you should shoot. That's, that's what it should be. If you're, if you're honestly saying that that's real. And then, you know, now we're talking about documentary, like, but that to me is, is the idea that you've distilled, you've, you've taken away all of the, the movie stuff. And people do brilliant work. I'm not saying that this is like a rule and don't please, you know, forgive my me being a preacher or something. Because I, I honestly, I'm, I'm no authority. I'll say that, put that on the record. Preach. I, I'm no authority on any of this stuff. It's just my opinion and, and my, it's informed by, you know, my life and who I've been around. It's your predilections. There you go. Yeah. Even an edit, if it's per done perfect and it's beautiful and the score, everything is there. Like even the, the audience, is a, it's a subliminal thing that you've now imposed. And and like I said, it could be so perfect, but you sort of deep down know that that person didn't get punched because you saw the close-up now. But if mm. you did see someone get punched and it never cut, oh shit, that person just got punched and that's scary and that's violent and that's that happened. So that is the, those are the antithesis. Those are the, that's the spectrum of what I'm speaking about. Devin, you should talk about the big countries fight scene. Oh boy. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I'm going to segue into thought I have about problematizing this with Dimish Jecture, but first the big country. Yeah. Um, have you seen the big country? Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I haven't. Um, that film has what is simultaneously my favorite day for night scene ever. And my, I think the best fight scene in film history. It, it's shot 
Day for Night, uh, and it's um, Gregory Peck and Charlton Heston fighting. And um, William Wyler, the director, wanted to make an anti-violent statement with the scene. So uh, as the fight gets more intense, the camera pulls out further and further until the camera's like a kilometer away. Um, and they're like ants fighting against this horizon uh, of Day for uh, Night. And it is the most gorgeous thing I've ever seen. Um, wow. Yeah. It's, uh, that sounds incredible. Oh, yeah. it's um, I can't recommend it enough. And it's a film that's, a, I think, been a bit yeah. unduly lost to time because he made Ben-Hur right after. But, All right. Um, yeah. I like it better than Ben-Hur. Me too. Personally. I do. I think it's my yeah. favorite Weiler. No, that's great. And see, see that, is a, that is a very thought-out way to observe that. That is a very defined, structured uh, way to show what is happening. And to create an energy that affected, obviously affected you guys. And if it's really thought out the way you're doing it, then it comes across. All of these elements, all of these tools, all of these techniques are there for our taking, for you to try and learn from. But if you're really involved or making it a part of the story you're trying to tell and really serving your script and respecting your script and respecting the format that you're doing, that you're creating with your director, like that to me is what comes across and what I feel. Films can have even totally contradictory ideologies from one another, but they have to be coherent inside themselves. And that can only be created from the ground up. Yeah. And that's me preaching, actually. But uh, uh, <laughs> right, I'm even, even less qualified uh. to preach. I have a question about mm-hmm. authenticity. Because this is, okay. th- this is something I have a lot of debates about with colleagues. First Cow, I think, is a good example of this in terms of um, kind of the texture of authenticity. Where... Uh-huh. Because something is shot, you know, with kind of light that emulates how real world lighting works, even if it's all fabricated um, and yeah. shot either on film or emulating that kind of texture and with minimal kind of camera movement. If you contrast that with, say, Emma's a great example of this other thing, which is aesthetics of almost fabulism or uh, something constructed where it, it, it scarcely feels like it takes place on earth. It's like in a candy, it almost feels mm-hmm. like it takes place in the board yeah. candy land. And I love that. Oh God. Autumn um, would love that. You said that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm glad. <laughs> like everything was supposed to be edible. Like I, I you know, her, <laughs> she would like say on set all the time. It, it should look like dessert. Yeah. yeah. No, that's just, this is, this is literally the philosophy we had on this film. Yeah. And, and yeah. Not, so this movie, yeah, it lives in a more, theatrical realm and not coincidentally it's it really foregrounds its digitalness it's just great it's virtually grainless at least in the copy i saw mm-hmm. it's smooth as like velvet I, I i can't think of a way to shoot that on film other than like shooting on an imax stock and then denoising that right. to make it look like that so you yeah. have this kind of grain free uh, digital texture that I often see paired with the opposite of authenticity in big quotes and uh, mm-hmm. film grain often associated with authenticity, essentially. Um, do you see that connection yeah. in a conscious way or and or why do you think that is a connection people make? I actually do think of it as uh, connected, but I guess I haven't really thought about it in the way you've framed it. But uh but it is. It's like, think about it. It's a, a film and the texture you get from film. That's a tactile, physical entity that's going through a machine that eventually gets to your projection. So it is, uh, I guess, authentic. I don't know if that's the right word, but it's 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 more uh, leans towards a tactile, physical, real 
element. But, you know, the film Emma wasn't supposed to be, you know, real as, you know, that was theatrical. That was this like uh, very whimsical story we were telling. The grain on that, there is actually a little bit of grain. If you see it in projection, you you may I bet, feel yeah. it, but hopefully not. Hopefully not. You know, like I said, that's not the goal. I think uh, uh, the idea there was just to make everything smooth and beautiful and creamy, something that that lended to the colors and the flowers and the costumes and the beautiful people and, and the castles, and something that enabled that to be the story, enabled you to just live in that world and not think about anything else, you know? Well, I maybe one thing that I thought we would talk about is when you're laying in digital grain in the post uh, domain. Oh yeah, I love this. Uh, I think that there's one there's one thing that happens, and I and I can see it. I've seen it a lot, which is like, okay, we have the grain tool, just slap it on and let's go. Mm-hmm. And I really, I don't like when I feel like it's digital with a grain in front of it. You know, so I think it's important for your students or anybody who who is uh, interested in this, that you really put a thoughtful, critical eye onto the amount of opacity, what type of grain. I mean, there's so many things you could do. You can blow your grain up. You can, they they have in the, in all of the software now, there's every grain from eight to to 65. It's you got to really, really like fine tune that and spend the time to make it so it seems integrated. And I think that's why people, when they can, when they're confused about what I've shot, you know, and on first cow is a great example of lots of people asking me like what it was like to shoot on film. And I'm a little bit proud to say like, Oh, sorry, bud. that, you know, we shot that digital because I feel like, um, you know, we really, paid attention and spent the time to make that just right. What really turned me on to film grain as like a thing, I used to shoot, when I shot digitally, I used to kind of frown on that back when I was younger and dumber. And um, <laughs> I, I kind of got convinced when I was introduced to the idea that grain kind of gives the eye something to grab onto. It implies detail even when you're looking at like a white wall or something. If you're shooting that totally clean, the eye doesn't know whether there's any detail there or not, but grain implies detail either way. But yeah, I think First Cow, add me to that club because that film fooled me until I looked up the IMDb <laughs> technical specs where yeah. it was like Alexa Mini. I'm like, shoot, I can. I thought I could catch that. <laughs> but um, yeah. yeah, and Devin and I think a lot about, yeah, about uh, film emulation and stuff. I mean, I don't know. Have you seen Chris' documentary now, the series? Yeah, yeah. That some of the, some of the emulate, like they just emulate the films that they parody so perfectly yeah. in the series i know and I it's love, almost like, all even digital. like was it nanook over the north and they had the subtitles and and it's hard to see because it's over yeah. white and that happens <laughs> yeah. like they they yeah they, they did a great job well they even did this thing with film grain that i since stolen which is um they don't use grain loops that have been shot on like a gray card they use a generator that recreate because like film grain isn't like uniform over the luminous spectrum right like it's grainier in the shadows yeah. than it is in the highlights um so right. what they do is they have an automatic grain generator that procedurally generates more this? in the shadows it's i forget the name of the post house but i'll put it in the show notes um it's whatever post house does documentary now um oh wow and yeah i read an interview will sent me an interview i should credit you will for that um th- where they mentioned that and that blew my mind that's incredible yeah yeah, this is a thing that I, there is a person, and I, it was too expensive for me to use on 
first cow. But Joe Goller, our guy, he, uh, he's the owner and, and um, colorist at Harbor and Post in New York. He was telling me about this in, in prep, and it got me really excited. But, yeah, there's an algorithm that they've created that some person, I, I don't even know the name. I think it's like Cinegrain. You can buy it. You have to buy it. It's like 20 grand or something for a film. But mm -hmm. uh, apparently he's created an algorithm that reacts like how film would react. So, yeah, in the shadows, it's different than the mids and the highlights, which I, of course, got really excited about. But I couldn't afford it. So in the yeah. post, like I said before, we just really had to really and and on all my movies that I do this too. It's it's uh you just have to really watch and focus and and integrate that. And you're all you know everything as you're dialing little 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 minuscule ups and downs there. And j just because I googled it, the company that did uh, documentary now is called Live Green. Oh yeah, maybe that's it. That might be the one that uh, Joe was telling me about. Yeah, using technology to get us back to this tactile. And to me, I just love. I mean, I think that's one of the things in film that I gets me most is just like I shoot almost everything on my Black Magic because I love the challenge of getting it where it needs to go, which is it's an uphill struggle sometimes. Let me tell you, but um, just that that process, I've learned more doing that than I have doing virtually anything else, um, because you started such a oftentimes at this sterile place, and how do you get it to the place you want? Yeah, I know. I I I, I love the challenge. It's you know sometimes like. Like I was saying, uh, you know, Yorgos, he had a good answer for this conversation. It was just like, yeah, I'm not going to, I don't want to waste my time or have that feeling on set knowing that I have to take it there. He just wants it now. He yeah. just wants to know that the dailies are going to look, you know, good out of the gate. And so, you know, Cut if you have the man. luxury, yeah, if you have the luxury to do that, that's, that's the best. But if you don't, it's I, also it's enjoyable. It's an enjoyable process to get there, and it feels good to know that you've done the homework and and really worked on that on that formula. You know, to get it there, it feels good to to sit in the theater at the end of all of it and know that okay, like we you know we pulled this off and it looks great and everybody's happy and yeah. Uh, and I, I think this really gets down too to the like almost to me existential question of. A film. Um, I had a debate with a film critic I quite respect um, a few years ago, um, where we vehemently disagreed. Where he said to me that imagine you could hypothetically shoot something on film, shoot it digitally, and you get the exact same image at the end, right? Identical, like image science, right? The Steve, like the, the Steve Yedlin thing, right, where he shows the two different things. Imagine that was just yeah. easy and possible. This film critic was arguing to me that because film was a physical medium, there's an inherent difference to shooting that that shows up on screen that even if you can perfectly perfectly 100% emulate it um that it would still be different I had a hard time kind of grappling with that because I I to me it's like all I care about is what's on the screen in the end well I, I have to say I agree with that in in a certain extent I agree with it because I am like a a, a very uh collaborative I a person on set my crew are my family I uh, collaborate with my directors in, in a very personal way. I think that there's an energy and there's a vibe and there's a, there's something that happens to your experience when you hear that stuff running through the gate. Mm -hmm. the, the, the actors, they find out what's happening and not, it never fails. They're always happy. And 
how do you describe that? You know, that's a, that's like an emotional thing, right? Like, uh, I had this this conversation. Um, Yorgos was uh, was in London while we were doing our post, and we had dinner together with Autumn, and this came up. And Yorgos said, "I don't want to deal with that part to get there to that look that looks like film. Like, why am I why am I torturing myself on set to look at this image I don't like to get to the same place as film?" You know, and he says that like, you know, he can get the budgets to do it. That's a, that's a factor there as well. I, I, I just have, I would have to agree a tiny bit, not completely because I like the challenge to get to that place. And I like the challenge to make a digital film look the way we want with grain or, you know, and all of, all of those layers. But, but it's true that there is a physical thing. And I don't know, I don't really know, have the words to describe it besides like, the emotion you get and the feeling and seeing it and the excitement that it creates around everyone. I think you, you said it well, where it's kind of two separate things, right? There's what ends up on screen and then there's almost the byproducts of the medium you shoot, right? The byproducts in this case yeah. being the aura on the set, which I think really is, right. a, it is a real, real thing. Yeah. So if it does affect, like if it does affect the, the atmosphere on a set, like maybe the work is being, is shifted in that direction, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's almost like telling an actor, you know, um, oh, you know, that process you have, don't do that. That's inefficient. Use this new process. Yeah. And what works for them works yeah. for them. And how they get there is how they get there. But there's, you know, like, yeah. I mean, Fincher's one person who's like, he'll, you know, he shoots gazillion takes of every single thing. And there's people like Brad Pitt, for example, that love it. Like the more, you know, they're, they're honing in on this thing that they're doing. And so like, think about it in that context. And now you know, you want digital. If you're shooting that much digital, that's just an expense now on film. That's an exorbitant amount of money that you would want to put into something else in your film. But for those guys, you know, it's whatever Fincher could probably do. To and wanted, for a but... camera operator shooting that way, uh -huh. fill in the blanks. <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> I'm asking yeah. you because you camera operated on Zodiac, right? That's yeah. right. Yeah, I did B camera. Yeah. Fincher comes to mind for me for kind of an adjacent reason, which is he's one of the few directors I see still kind of riding that late 2000s, early 2010s wave of trying to get the cleanest image imaginable. Yeah. Um, that was big for a while. Well, Fincher is about control. Like he wants to have complete control of every single thing. You know, he's a genius. He, he, he knows what lens he knows what resolution like he is deeply deeply invested in all of those layers and he tries to this is from my perspective he tries to just eliminate all of the all of the extras all of the sort of human touch if we can say that so he's giving himself all the room later to do as much post work on everything he, he can and he's giving himself all the takes that you can imagine to find that one moment where, you know, there's one little inflection on somebody's mm -hmm. face that he likes. Like he gives himself, this goes all the way to him tying his shoes. I, I, I would, I believe, I think he's about understanding and controlling every single element of all aspects of life and filmmaking included. <laughs> and I, you know, I love, I love the guy. I grew up with him. I, you know, him and Sion, I would call like my movie parents and they were, they were always supportive of me moving up and just great people. But those jobs for me were a nightmare. Like, I don't, I, <laughs> it's the opposite. It's the, it's the opposite of like working with Gus where like everything is like, it's like fate brought him this bird that landed on the lens or, you know, it's like, all of it is like in the moment and he loves the accidents and, and 
you know, all of the, just the life, all the things that life bring you on any particular moment, like minute to minute, you know, that's why Gus was like, let's start testing. And I was like, all right, you know, tell me, you know, what are you after? And it was like everything. And he was showing me this black magic camera he had and he was showing footage on his phone. And I'm just going, oh boy, like this is, he's, you know, he means it. He really means it, yeah. you know? And then Fincher, Fincher knows the lenses he's using uh, two years before that shot has ever landed on that stage. Right. This this isn't to do with our main topic of conversation at all, okay. but uh, uh, Gus Van Sant's Psycho is always something interesting to me, and I, I wonder if you have insight because you're mentioning like, oh, he'll, oh, you know, yeah. like the like you said, like the bird lands in front, like so, yeah. uh, uh, almost shot for shot remake with like you know it's in color. There's like occasionally slightly different sequences or shots, but like, what do you think about Gus drew him to that? experiment to that project well i'll tell you what i know and i know that gus van sant is an artist he's a true artist and he was uh he just thought to himself what would happen what would happen if i did this as an experiment you know and he remade that movie frame shot for shot with chris doyle and i thought it was just such a i mean no who's doing that who's done that <laughs> And he wanted to do it to see what happened. And so I love it for that. I think that, I think, thank God he's experimenting. And yeah, like in the mainstream or you're like, you're, you're the gauges of success, you know, he's got some that are up and some panned or whatever, but I'm grateful for people like that, that, ex that are exploring new things. Cause to me, I think it's, oh, a, for sure. it's an art form. I feel like it's filmmaking is one of the best forms of expression that exists and when it's done right, it's just like, it's, there's nothing beats it, in my opinion, obviously. He's, it's exciting to be around someone like that, you know? And I love him dearly. And I, like, whenever he calls me or I talk to him, I, you know, he's a painter and he, he's silk screening these things. And he's just like, he's just a magical human being. So there, so that, so when I talk, when anyone brings that up, you know, a lot of times it's like, oh, that movie sucked. Why do you do that? I'm just like, no stop like oh, that is no. like that I, to me is i hugely like, admire yeah. the experiment yeah. for sure <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah this brings to mind something that uh quentin tarantino <laughs> once said that i very strongly disagree with uh -huh. which is that every bad movie you make uh you have to make three good movies to make up for it <laughs> and well, i think it, i think it's more yeah. every uninteresting movie you make <laughs> maybe you have to make three movies interesting yeah, movies I, that make up for you it. know what like, i I, I call on this a lot in my mind and I wasn't even there. It was an interview that Kelly told me about that she had. I think it was at Sundance and she, I think she made Old Joy. And it, it was like, there was some hype around it. People loved it because it's a great film. And she had this interviewer, this woman was asking her like, kind of just getting at, at, at the facts or, or getting at this idea that like, oh, now you've made like kind of a successful, uh, indie movie like so what are you gonna do now if you get a get you know if you get money to do something and she was just like no this is my movie right now this is what i'm dedicated to like i don't you don't think about it like three movies versus two movies or one versus two bad like i don't to me that's a ridiculous thing to say because i think that like if i'm on a movie right now that is my movie this is my golden moment in my life whatever it is at the time you know and i think if you think about it that way 
you're focusing on what is great about what you're doing or trying to enhance it or trying to make what you're doing better. You know, obviously there's going to be a body of work that's laid out, you know, after us, after we pass or whatever, but, and I'm, I'm conscious of that, but sometimes I'll see a movie in my early stages of shooting and I, 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 I thought to myself, oh man, I, I know I didn't have all the tools, but I was trying, like I was paying attention. Like, you know, I was onto something, you know, I could see that and it might, it might be an inferior thing now or something, but I see the value in trusting it as like, that is the thing and not like, oh, I'm just using this as a stepping stone to get this big budget or selling out or whatever they call it or whatever they say about that shit. You know what I mean? It's <laughs> you like, are punk rack. Yeah. It's like, whatever. It's like, I'm, I read scripts that are all across all budgets, you know, and and I'll tell you the truth about that is the bigger the number on the front page, usually the shittier that thing is. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's just my own. <laughs> yeah. My honest like feeling on, on that, the question of like, should I care if movies I work on are good? My honest answer is like, did I learn anything? Yeah, exactly. And that's a big part of it. I mean, it's funny. We, we could go back to Fincher. He, he sort of like found out or realized that I was like, didn't like doing his movies because uh, when he was prepping um, Zodiac and Harris on the game was like, I don't know if I could do this again. This is a nightmare. This is hard. And it's, it's, it's just this monotony of like, Oh my God. And when he was doing um, prepping or in the, preliminary stages of Zodiac just being like an idea and he called me I was in England I remember it was like my first cell phone or something he called me and he was like surprised like oh you're in England it was a, a funny moment and he's like Chris I think I'm gonna do it and I was like all right Harris like let's do this I got you know I'm always gonna I'm always gonna go with you but I always had to remind him he told me like don't let me do this again and he was in the room with Fincher he called me out he got me busted and so during the movie Fincher would come over to me and say like Blavo, I don't, what's up? Why don't you like do my movie? And he was like kind of bummed. And I'm like, I had to like tell him. I'm like, look, I, it's, what does it mean? Like say your name a hundred times to me and it doesn't, it sounds like a weird thing. Like I'm doing, you're doing, we do a hundred takes of every single thing. And it's like, what am I doing? I'm like going into the mill, like pulling a lever like 50,000 times. It's like, I'm not growing from this, you know? And that was how right. I felt. But I, you know, again, I love venture. I love his films as well. But it's, it's, you know, there's different, largely, wildly different philosophies on filmmaking. And I think they're all exciting. And, you know, obviously I gravitate to a certain type of film, but I'm also, I try to be open to new things and, and open-minded. I watch everything. I try to watch just like every film I can. And uh, it's amazing the things that will take you, that will surprise you and change your life like literally like i i you know i'm emotional about these things they're they they affect me and i love that feeling you know like these mm -hmm. some of my best friends i've made on film sets and like i mean kelly's films for example like that is a family there's like 20 people there that i talk to a lot and i love very dearly when we come back together i mean it is awesome it is just like completely awesome there's a shorthand there we all know Kelly, you know, is our, is, is, is our guiding voice. And we just love doing that. We love working for her. And, you know, it's, it's the best. You love the people you're working with and you love the way you work with them. Yeah. yeah. What more can you ask for? 
Yeah. And we experiment together. You know, that's another, like, that exciting part doesn't go away. You know, we're just like, oh, there's, here's our new challenge. Like, what are we going to do? And I get excited, I get excited about the other layers, like the costumes and the, you know, the hair and makeup, all these people, you know, they have their own, they, their own challenge. And to me, it's exciting. Like, you know, when I land on a set and I'm like just amazed with my, just my eyeballs before I'm even putting a camera to it, like, that's exciting to me. Like now I'm going to put my layer on that. I'm going to put. That's something we haven't even touched on. Yeah. Is like how much production design and costumes yeah. <laughs> and like all these other factors go into like, the, like we're talking about texture and like, yeah. like that, that's, li they're literally arranging the textures that you're going to be, as you said, pointing the camera at. Yeah, no, that's the hugest thing. Like imagine like, I don't want to say easy, but imagine like how great my life is when I show up on a set. And all of these layers are so rich and so perfect and so, it's like, I can't lose. Like, I got to elevate what I'm doing to make that, to, to, to respect all of that, you know? And yeah, I mean, Tony Gasparo, our production designer on, on uh, First Cow, in the scouts, he's like grabbing bark from the ground and loading it in his truck because he's going to build that house later, all out of bark from trees, from all the forests there. Like, that's, that's. Wow. That's a detail that, you know, not everybody might do. Like, that's amazing. Yeah, so I might bring in outside lumber, kind of treat it to kind of look something, like it's from the forest. Like, maybe yeah. something easier. But he's, like, digging this stuff. I mean, it's spiders and all. You know, it's, like, wet and cold. And I just, spiders? you know, that's. Oh, yeah. spiders are crawling. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh. yeah. So, like, that. that's I, I was going, like, he's building the house with spiders? <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah. No, and then there's uh, April Napier. There's all of our our uh, hair and makeup people that like you know they're they're killing it. And when they everybody's on board, it's a magical thing. And then you know we're all going out to eat together at night, and we are you know when we're on location, we're at the bar together. We're like we're a team. We're a family. Oh, uh, that's a really nice place to be in because um, Will and I, when we work on films, we often keep our crews extremely small, like five people small, uh, like and six yeah. people because um, and, and we're both fairly reclusive in that way, and we, you know, and uh, that's kind of mm -hmm. our kind of happy, happy place. And and one one thing that I'm finding again, we we uh, in the people we're talking to on this, especially people who work with larger crews, is the idea that yes, this is possible with more than six people, and that is very heartening to me. Yeah, it's true. It's true. I have a couple of like very non sequitur questions that I'm kind of just really personally curious about that I, I just for like historical posterity, I want to ask just, yeah. just so I can know. One is about the bling ring and the specific image texture, the, the whole visual team, because the authorship of that film is, it was in a unique circumstance visually. The kind of aesthetic that you all created, uh, and I mean, this is the highest compliment. It's ugly as sin. And I love it. I, and coming from me, if it, Will will tell you that me saying something as ugly as sin and I love it is about the best thing I can ever say about a film. Arriving at that, I mean, for a movie that clearly cost more than, you know, uh, yeah. more than a low budget film and had, you know, a, uh, I mean, Paris Hilton is in that movie. Yeah. The, uh, to, to shoot, I mean, the, the whole thing is shot in the red, um, very noisy with some of the kind of nastiest color science and yet it's oh it's like clearly overexposed and i loved every minute of it yeah. <laughs> and again i i know that you came into this film kind of as a dp kind of after it was largely developed visually how was that developed and two how did you all maintain like confidence that it would work throughout the film because it's it was one of the most shockingly visually risky films i've seen in a while 
Yeah, you know what? You're right. It was it was developed um, before I was on board, uh, but I was a part of definitely part of the testing. And I think this is a funny story because I think it goes back to Harris trying to break the camera. Like we mm -hmm. shot, we went. He went for the noise, and I think that was a philosophy that him and Sophia had come up with because they were just saying like, "What are the kids doing?" And they're shooting everything on. And at that time, the phones were much lower resolution and kind of crappy, you know, there was no latitude. And so that was, I, that was the spirit. And that was sort of how that came about. And then Harris worked on making that noise a part of that idea that it was like that crappy, uh, low res, like phone, like what the kids would be using. And, and that, that is a great example of like coming up with, a, with rules for yourself and creating a philosophy because it was like they put their heads inside what the kids would do. And that's what it was. And that's exactly what, why it looks like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, I, I, and, and I, it's funny, the guy, the, the, um, the text, I think it was Lightiron that were, did the, the post and they did all of our dailies and, and final DI and everything. And they thought we were going to melt the sensor like they thought we were going to burn it out because we were shooting day ex bright sunny los angeles day exteriors at 3200 asa oh my god so we would have to have like four inches of filters in front to, <laughs> to nd it down to a proper stop one one fault we we 100 found and had to correct which was when you have that many nd filters in it things turn green or magenta mm -hmm. like because those filters are not as good of quality of glass as you get in in the lens itself and so those were those were our um factors in that recipe that was made but yeah it is definitely um harris and sophia looking at it like what the kids would see like from their laptop cameras and their phones and all that I just respect that so much because especially for you know Sophia that's coming off of a string of like some of the most visually sumptuous films I can imagine yeah <laughs> comparing that to like Marie Antoinette is like it's it's like literally night and day it's it's, it's ridiculous um, yeah but see I think that's that's again it goes to the idea that uh, you know she was serving the script you know she chose mm -hmm. and they chose together to that was the aesthetic that that they thought represented that that script that story i i've literally limitless things to talk about because i'm such a nerd about this yeah devin devin's the dop in the <laughs> yeah, team so he's I definitely <laughs> yeah just talk shop man <laughs> oh yeah so okay i gotta i gotta ask focal lengths um what's your kind of thought process on that because uh, like to kind of ground it in where i'm coming from personally my big my big kind of starting point for any focal length dis discussion is that it's a function of camera positioning, right? And do I want the audience to feel close or distance from the characters, that sort of thing. Um, what's your kind of logic for where you put the camera and how far it is from the actors and, or even the scene and the focal lengths you choose? You probably know everything I'm about to say. I think it's like, if you want to feel close and intimate with someone, I think proximity is a big deal. And I, I, my sort of the, the philosophies that I, I gravitate to are like Robert Brisson, which is like the 50 millimeter where it's like the focal, the, the field of view of a human being. And so if you want to shoot a wide shot, like go across the street. And if you want to be close to the, to a human, like get close to them. So I, I really like that because one, it's like, it's restraint. It's like you're, you're forcing yourself to, 
I don't want to say be lazy, but it's like, you know, you're forcing yourself to stick to this kind of guideline. And I like it because I, I avoid wider lenses because of distortion, um, you know, and I, I'll avoid longer lenses. So I, I like the portraiture. I like the, the middle of the road and forcing myself to put the camera where it wants to be in reality, you know, like where you're a fly on the wall when you back up and you're, you know, in a close up and you're close to the, to your subject matter. But I, you know, I, I love the look, you know, of different vocal links for different things. I think there's a time and a place, but the, the fundamental idea that I live with is that is more of the Prasan attitude where it's like just that one perfect human being's perspective that you can change on your own. Yeah, Devin and I were talking before uh, uh, before we did this interview, and we we were just talking about things. And uh, Devin just brought up what what is, what is the what are the through lines? What like in his work? What what? And one of the only like solid things we had was like it seems like he has some preference for focal lengths that are <laughs> in that kind of range. Yeah. yeah. Do you have any other preference? Like any other stuff where you look at like where you feel in your films like you can tell it's you because blank. Yeah, and I think it's I think it's exactly this. I think it's that uh, I don't go crazy with uh, super wide lit angles or like I'm not afraid to. I think that there's like a time to do it, but I think you know working with Kelly and she's very much into this this philosophy as well. Uh, you know, I maybe autumn. Yeah, autumn. I've definitely like in some of those ballrooms or some of the castles, like we used like the big giant wide shots and that was you know that was it that was like okay like how am i not going to show the ceiling in this castle that was painted 200 <laughs> years ago that was the time that was the time to use it and that was the that was the director that was it like you know we did that you know we made that decision together but i uh yeah i guess that that could be considered a through line it's hard to think i don't know i just I don't know. It's hard to think about my body of work as having like a certain style. Mm. I feel like um, I like the idea that I maybe have showed some diversity, you know, like I, with Emma was a big thing for me. I say that a lot. I'm like, okay, this is, this will be like my, this is like my coming out part, like for like mainstream, mm -hmm. this is a big studio film and we had a giant budget. And I, I thought it was the most hilarious thing to me. Like I'm maybe more known for like this kind of scrappy, grainy, gritty, dirty thing. And then this is the one that, that I'm showing the world. Like who's, what did this guy done before? Wow. What the fuck is it? This doesn't make any sense. And I like that. I, I like it. It's sort of my trick on the world. It's like, all right, but it, but again, I like that it shows the diversity because it's not about one style. It's, it's, it's the contrary. It's about, it's about what I gravitate to and what scripts I get or, you know, what story we're trying to tell. I definitely get that like weird counterintuitive pleasure out of shooting something that's so totally out of my wheelhouse. Um, that is, yeah. there's nothing like that. Yeah, it's exciting. I mean, that's what's so great about all the testing is that you're finding things, and some of them you just put in your back pocket. Like we, I have these catalogs of all of these testings, and I could say, "Oh, here's the this is the one," you know, and you could sort of visualize. Like when I'm reading a script, like, oh, wait, what was that thing we did before? That's what this should. And I'm excited to keep doing it. Now, you know, the cameras and the formats are bigger now. Like there's so many 
there's like these these DPs that are making their own lenses. Like, oh no, really? I love oh. it. I can't wait to see all of it. I'm gonna fall behind. Yeah, that curve. I forget. Yeah, no, there's like this. There's this brand, and it's DPs that are making their own lenses. But that is exciting, cool. Like, what yeah. what do you got? Let's check this out. Let's mix it up with some old filters. Like, let me put some dirt on there. Let's put some Vaseline, whatever. Like, you know, all of these things are are exciting, experimental. And Are there any tools that you've kind of like had your eye on for a while that you're like, I can't wait to find a script or a The story. reason to do that? Yeah. I'm like going backwards where I'm like, I want to shoot a film on eight. Regressing, millimeter. yeah. Regressing. Oh, yeah. I want to shoot a film on eight millimeter <laughs> because... I on my own I'll shoot a lot. I've shot we, we just went my wife and I just went and shot a few rolls out of protest um just recently and uh just like every time I get this stuff back I freak out. It's just so gorgeous and beautiful. And uh even sixteen, you know, on like a like a single registration camera, like a scoopic or a bolex or something, like how do I make a movie on that, you know? And I think, you know, there's a lot of other logistical problems because of sound or whatever, but maybe, you know, I like, I, I like, I'm like taking it back, but I, I, you know, the, the, the large format stuff and like the IMAX, like uh, there, that, that stuff is really exciting. That, that was one question I wanted to ask about Emma was the large format nature of that, that camera. Um, I know most, at least I'd say over half the DPs that I do color work for, um, once they start using the alexa lf they don't look back right they're just like that's their new alexa yeah. is, is that kind of where you're coming from or does it bring a different kind of feel to the image because people different people kind of have different feels about what a camera is in that way right is it just an image gathering yeah. tool or is it an aesthetic well it is but they but they have they emote different things they, they definitely have a function in in regards to how you perceive a space and therefore creating a different feel so yeah it's still a box that has a gate and you you know you look through a piece of glass it's still that but when you think about large format you're getting a larger scope and scale of things so emma for example like being in these castles and this these magnificent gardens and places it, it was perfect it just that's i knew that early on and um and i don't think you always need that and then not to mention all of those old lenses and glass and all these things that I love to dig through, uh, I can't use on large format there, you know, there's like, there's like, you know, there's maybe 10 different sets of large format glass right now. And there's thousands of, of the other for large format, like 35, for example. So that's like, this is just another thing that you gotta, you have to weigh all of your options, but I, when you say that DPs use it and they fall in love, like I get it. Like I really loved it. I was shocked at how smooth everything was. Like to me, when people would come to me and brag or say, say something about like the resolution on any particular camera, like, don't you know the, the red fucking whatever Geronimo or whatever they call them now it's got like 16 million gigabytes. And I'm like that, I don't want that. Like that to me sounds like I'm getting more digital. Like, so I, I end up dumbing things down. Mm -hmm. So the large format, when I, when I discovered and I projected it and really found out that it was smoothing things out and they really did an amazing, amazing, incredible job on the, on the sensor. And I, so I get it, man. I'm like, you know, I'm in that, I'm definitely in that club, but I, I don't, 
I pick the cameras just the same way I pick the scripts and all the other tools. It's all has to be like thought out. And you know, on commercials, I'll have directors just say, yo, let's use an LF. And it's like, right on, let's do that. Would you ever post, uh, I would be curious to see like, just raw image captures of what you shot for first cow. Oh, that is going to be interesting to compare. Oh man, I'll send you guys. I'll send you guys something that'll blow your mind because oh. think about the oh, day. Really? Think about the day for night. Yeah, you know that yeah. stuff was bright. Like it was like the the what the negative got, what the digital neg was receiving was all the exposure in the world. Every flower, every butterfly, every plant. Oh, you every, did that. Ah. Every cloud. And so the, the, the lookup table that we created, it just stomped on it. It mm. just turned a bright day exterior into nighttime. So like imagine the difference in the contrast there. Must have had to. It was incredible. Oh, Regraining that must have been fun. Yeah. yeah. We'd love to use those for our We'd love to use those for our show notes. I'll, if, I'll uh, ask uh, Sean Goller. I'll, I'll make sure you guys get some of those. Oh, thanks. That's, that's lovely. I think, uh, cool. Thank you. Yeah. Imagine like you're on set and you have to look at, at your image that's nighttime during the day. So you go into a tent and there's you can't get dark enough. You just can't. So we have our LUT put on it and I'm looking at the day exterior outside this tent and we're holding it as tight as you can. And then your eyes have to adjust. You have to wait a minute. And then you're starting to see, you know, that was the process. You had to fly by wire, basically. Oh, wow. Trust your scopes. Well, I had, you know, yeah, Sean Goller, he was inside the tent. I didn't let him out. He was, <laughs> he was zipped in there. So he was, he was giving me the notes. But yeah, it's, it, it was a, 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 a huge contrast. Well, I, I can see why you're so proud of that because that sounds terrifying. Well, no, it wasn't terrifying on the day yeah. because you could just flip the switch and see everything knowing that it's on the neg. And then knowing also that later we were going to add this this recipe on, with our lookup tables that we had made in, in prep. So, it, it I, you know, you could walk around with confidence because of that. But yeah, you know, whatever. There was, there was a nuance to it as well. Like imagine like a date, like guys standing in a bush like at nighttime and they're, they're looking to shoot a cookie or King Lou jumps in the river and there's bushes all around. And I, I, you have to have highlights so it feels like moon. So I would have to overlight like a day, a bright day, you know. And so that was just a trippy wow. looking weird thing when you see it in real time. It's kind of it's kind of interesting how day for night has kind of taken a complete 180 because it used to be you expose normally in camera, and then you had a filter in front. You know the day for night filter, like I think these like, yeah. the searchers and all everything like that, and you'd get a negative that was horrendously underexposed, but you just print it like that. Um, and now it's yeah. now it's like no, you. Well, then they would do sky replacement, and there was all this uh, stuff. There was this oh, whole yeah. rigmarole. I mean, there's there. It's funny in the in the Alexa Mini that we used on that film. I didn't realize until that prep that there is a day for night like setting. Yeah. And it's just like, it's, it's not very good, but it was hilarious. Like it had three different gradients of this day for night, you know, and someone just said, Oh, have you looked at that? And I was like, Oh wow. Like that was a whole new thing that opened up. Like there's, there's a huge menu in that. It's a computer, that camera. Yeah, well, I, I I look forward to seeing those in action once we're all able to, <laughs> once we're all able to yeah. produce things again. Uh -huh. Yeah, I, I mean, usually I'd ask, uh, hey, you know, uh, what, what what's next? Do you have any big shows coming up? But I, I think the world is in a certain place. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Chris, whether it's seeing how you make the next recipe or how you turn the knobs or whatever, we are excited to see what comes next when it comes next. 
And we're really grateful that you came on to talk to us today. Yeah, likewise, you guys. That was a great conversation. Great afternoon. Uh, maybe when I'm in Vancouver, we can hang out. Yeah, once the borders open. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for now, don't let Americans in. <laughs> No, no, no. You're not welcome right now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, uh, yeah, we're Fort- Fortress Canada for the time being, I guess. Yeah. Well, yeah, I appreciate the conversation, guys. Thanks for being so cool. And uh, Anna, that was a nice talk. Thanks for joining us today. Paige Smith is our associate producer. If you enjoyed today's podcast, come on and subscribe to it. Read it, review it, and that'll help other people discover it. If you want to come on the show or if you have an idea for something we can talk about or just want to ask a question about an upcoming topic that we can answer on the podcast, you can get in touch with us by email via filmformally at gmail.com or you can find us on social media on Twitter or Facebook at filmformally. We'd like to acknowledge that this podcast was recorded on the unceded territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. See you next time, folks.